Acts chapter 2. Probably figured out that's why I read that from that passage, Acts chapter 2, because we're going to witness a baptism this morning, two baptisms of new believers, Acts chapter 2. I'm going to focus on Acts chapter 2, verses 40, 41, and 42. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them. This is Peter saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in, it is literally, and in the prayers. So this is Peter's sermon on uh, the day of Pentecost. This is a the first Pentecostal sermon on the true uh, first Pentecost after the resurrection and ascension of our Lord. Our Lord had assumed our nature. Our Lord had assumed our duties. Our Lord had assumed our liabilities. Our Lord suffered. Our Lord was buried, died, was buried. Our Lord rose from the dead. Our Lord revealed himself to others. Our Lord ascended into heaven. And he had given promise, especially terminating upon the original disciples or the apostles, that at some point in the future, they were to wait in Jerusalem until this power came upon them. And so this is, this is the, uh, this is, uh, Peter after he receives this power from on high, this special endowment of the Holy Spirit. And you can, you know, you read the gospels and sometimes you go, Oh, Peter's a lot like me. When you read the Acts, you go, Peter's not, no longer like me. He's bold. You know, he started to connect the dots. The Spirit of Christ uh, gave him the knowledge of Christ in the Old Testament and the Christ that he had witnessed in his life, and this boldness came upon him. So here he is preaching. It's Pentecost, one of the three annual festivals of the ancient Jewish calendar. So there would be people from all over the ancient world here. Some people think Jerusalem went from about 100,000 to upwards of a half a million and maybe even more three times a year. So a lot of people were there. A lot of things had happened around Jerusalem, in and around Jerusalem. There was, I'm sure, verbal buzz going on at the time, people talking about this Jesus of Nazareth. Now, Peter's sermon was during that era of the early church. Now, it would be wrong to read this as a prescription, a recipe for church growth. That is, we should expect every sermon the pastor preaches for 3,000 people to repent, believe, and be baptized. That would be very hard. We don't even have 100 people in here. So we don't want to overdo this, but this is a paradigm because these Verses that I'm going to focus on, especially verse 42, they continued steadfastly in apostolic doctrine, Christian fellowship, uh, the Lord's Supper, and church prayer. That did continue in small groups and sometimes in houses when you read the rest of the New Testament. So you don't have to have 3,000 members to be a true church. You can be very small, and most churches are very small, uh, if you haven't noticed, including ours. But this is a big day in redemptive history. Uh, it has lessons we can learn 
from it, very much of a paradigm shift occurs for those Jews, including the apostles, who believed Jesus was the fulfillment of the promised Messiah according to the law of Moses and the prophets and the writings of the Old Testament. Just think about it. This was a transitional period, the development of doctrine and practice from the old forms to the new, from what we call the Old Testament to the New Testament, from the three annual festivals in Jerusalem and weekly synagogue meetings every Saturday. These Jews went to the assembly of the saints on every Sunday. That had to be difficult for them. It wasn't easy for first century Jews to go to synagogues on Saturday and then to meet with people who profess Jesus as the Messiah, the fulfillment of the Old Testament on Sundays. It would have been very uh, uh, difficult, but they did it. They went from the, uh, to the assembly of the saints on every Sunday, the Lord's Day. They went from scribes, Pharisees, and rabbis to pastors or elders and deacons among the members of the church. This is a time of transition. Slowly but surely, apostolic regulations for church, for the church were delivered to the saints. Church worship, church government, regulations for reading, teaching, and preaching the written word of God, corporate singing, corporate prayer, baptism, the Lord's Supper, church discipline, all these things were beginning to take shape. Okay, so we're in a time of transition. The book of Acts is a history of how the apostles of Christ applied the great commission given to them by Christ. And over the centuries, people have debated, what should we call this book? Some people call it the Acts of the Apostles, right? Some people have called it the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Mine calls it the Acts of the Apostles. I prefer it to call the acts of the risen Lord Jesus. If that sounds good, don't think I'm a genius. It's a title of a book I read. And the reason why it sounds good is because you've, if you've read the book of Luke, you know that's, that's Luke volume 1. Luke volume 2 is the book of Acts. Listen to the first couple verses of Acts 1. The former account I made, O Theophilus, the gospel of Luke, of all that Jesus began to do and teach. What's the implication? The, the teacher, the doer and teacher, is still doing and teaching. He's changed locations, but by virtue of his divine nature, it's still Jesus causing his church to grow. He's just now in heaven in the book of Acts, working through the first primary instruments, the apostles, first Peter and John, and then Paul. So this is the acts of the risen Lord Jesus. Jesus caused this to happen. Did you hear Peter said that he has caused this Pentecostal blessing to come upon you, referring to the Lord Jesus. Now, we're going to look at verses 40 to 42, so let's get there. First of all, in verse 40, notice there we have a brief summary of Peter's preaching, a brief summary of Peter's preaching. And with many other words... He testified and exhorted them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Now, this is Luke writing about this. So what he's saying is this. Oh, Peter said more than I'm writing. With many other words, he testified and exhorted them. So Peter's sermon was more involved than Luke's written account of it. You you know this when you read the book of Acts and you see sermons 
It takes you 30 seconds to read the sermon and you get mad at the pastor because he preaches for an hour. No, those are they're samples of what was said, okay? They're reducing um, their words so that they don't go on and on and on and on. That, that's happening here. Luke's account is selective, we might say, not exhaustive. So I can preach for an hour and it's okay. Notice as well, it was both doctrinal and practical. He testified, he's proclaiming doctrine, and exhorted. There's the practical part. He told them the truth, then he told them what they ought to do in light of the truth. So we could say preaching should involve both. And if you read the Pauline epistles, you know that Paul includes both doctrinal instruction and pastoral exhortation and admonishment. But notice something else about Peter's preaching, the end of verse 40. It was direct and to the point. Be saved from this perverse generation. Many people in our day would say you shouldn't even read verses like that if you have people coming to your church for the first time, even though I don't think this is the first time I've ever preached to, to the, the, the seasoned saints up here. For most of you, they're first-time visitors. Don't read verses like that. Be saved from this perverse generation. It's in the Bible. We have to figure out what he means by it. Uh, but it was very bold of him to do that, direct and to the point. Now, remember, we read a larger section here. So Peter had proved to, the, to his audience that Jesus was the Messiah, that means the anointed special servant of God, that was promised in the Old Testament. You know, Acts is in the New Testament. I'm preaching from the New Testament, the latter part of the Bible. But the larger part of the Bible has a bunch of promises. And one is that there would be one who comes who suffers and yet serves both the Lord and sinners for the forgiveness of their sins. This is the Messiah. Peter was saying that which was promised then has come in Jesus of Nazareth, and he's proclaiming the benefits of Christ to them. He had proven to them that they killed him, but even that, the death of Christ by the hands of, of guilty sinners, was by God's determined counsel. So it's not as if God's reacting, oh, look what they did to my son, my incarnate son. Now we, what are we going to do? So he shuffles the deck and does things differently. This is the predetermined uh, counsel and foreknowledge of God. Peter had proclaimed Christ's resurrection. You keep reading the book of Acts, you know, preaching the resurrection got Paul in, in trouble a lot. Peter had proclaimed Christ's resurrection. That is, the Son of God assumed a real human nature, body and soul, really lived, really obeyed, really suffered, really died, was really dead, and then somehow, some way, his soul that he assumed into the one person of the Son of God was brought back to his body, and it was renovated, re re resurrected, raised from the dead as the first fruits of a great harvest to come. Peter believed in a literal bodily space and time resurrection of the Son of God, and he proclaimed it, but he just didn't proclaim it in a vacuum. You know, he just didn't create that doctrine. You remember when I read the passage, he's saying, by the way, David said this was going to happen. Being a prophet... Was David a prophet? I asked that question one time, and, and somebody said, no, you can't read in the Old Testament where it says David's a prophet. 
But the answer is God tells us he was a prophet right here in Acts chapter 2, right? David was a prophet, so he was speaking about days in the future. So David was a type of Christ, and he was speaking about the Christ in Psalm 16 and the resurrection of the Christ. So he's proclaiming all this to these people, but he's connecting these great acts of God in Christ with the Old Testament. You remember, if you've been here long enough, you know this one. This is that. This What's happened in our lifetime, what I'm proclaiming to you, is that which the prophet said would take place. It's a huge way to think about the relationship between not only the two testaments, but the incarnation sufferings of Christ before the New Testament was written. That was that. Or if we lived then, we could say this, Jesus, is that. That's what he's doing with these people. He's saying, people, all the hope of Israel terminates and centers on this person, if you would have your sins forgiven, listen to him, believe upon him. If you would go to glory and be resurrected someday in this glorious body and, and live in the new heavens and the new earth, come to Jesus. He's heaven's only answer. So notice this direct and to the point preaching. He had already told them to repent. Um, I remember 1983 or so, yes, I was in college, and there was this big crowd out in front of my favorite, my favorite room at the campus at Fresno State, the campus bar. So in order to get to the place I went to every day, the bar, I had to walk by this huge group and there's all these people listening to this woman scream at the top of her lungs, repent, you howers and howermongers. And she just kept going. She was from the Sister Cindy, I think was her name. And I'm standing in the back going, what's going on? And there's these other guys passing out, you know, Bibles and pamphlets and going, don't listen to her. Here, read this. And they're witnessing, you know, all that stuff. Repent. And so I... I go, what's this repent thing? She never explained what it meant. Peter used that word here, and this woman was probably trying to come on the heels of Peter, Peter there, but repent. Um, now, some people take, repent means this. Acknowledge you're a sinner. I've sinned in the past, and now turn and go stop sinning. Eh. To change the mind about God's law and your relation to it is to repent. I acknowledge I'm a sinner. But when we repent from idols, what do we do? We turn to our new obedience or to God. That's what Paul says. And you have turned from idols directly to God, we could say, through Christ. So he, this is what he wants them to do. You guys, you already know you're a sinner. Come on. Stop it. Stop denying it. Just knuckle under and, and realize that your only hope is not change your mind about your sins and now live a righteous life to earn your own way to heaven, but change your mind about the depth and the ugliness and the vileness of your sin and the miles and miles and piles 
of guilt that you've incurred over your lifetime and go to Christ with all, with all of it for the full cleansing and salvation of your soul. A foul eye to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. That's repentance. You don't go without your sins. You go with them. Why would you go without sins to a Savior? Can you save me from my sins that I left behind, that I no longer do? So this was bold preaching. So that was point one, a brief summary of Peter's preaching. Point two, verses 41 and 42. The twofold result of Peter's preaching. There's a twofold re- result here. Notice in verse 41, then those who gladly received his word. What's the assumption? There were those who didn't gladly receive his word, right? If some gladly received his word, not all, then others didn't gladly receive his word. Some did not respond favorably to what Peter was saying. I know how that is. Some of you know how that is. I already said we're all guilty sinners. Some people don't like to hear that. That doesn't minister to me. Well, if all I did was expose your cancer, your wound, and just keep yelling at you, cancer, 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 and I never gave you a remedy, but I had the remedy, and that would be bad news. All I did was scold you because of your, because of your faults. I was the fault-finding, scolding pastor. Some of you know, I always tell visiting preachers, what are you going to preach? And they tell me, and I always say, don't scold my people. I'll scold them if they need scolding, but not from the pulpit because you create people that are always going to doubt their salvation because I keep telling you how bad you are. You're, you're way worse than you realize, okay? And God's way better than we'll ever know. I just get that one and go take that one to the bank because it's, it's true. But here we had some that didn't like what was being said. And you know, if you continue to read in the book of Acts, there's a lot of persecution that goes on there, but some did respond favorably. And these are the ones I want to concentrate on. They gladly received his word. They repented, because he told them to repent with the assumptions here. They must have done that. They're receiving his word. They're believing the things that he's saying. I'm a sinner. I need to acknowledge that. My only hope is this risen Christ, this Messiah, this fulfillment of the Old Testament. That's my only hope. So they believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, we could say. They were saved. They were gladly receiving his word. I I like that word. They gladly received it. Those of us that have come to Christ, especially in riper years, you might be able to remember when you weren't gladly receiving it, and then at some point you're just gladly receiving it, and then you just kept on gladly receiving it, and then at some point you didn't as gladly received it, and you slapped yourself up upside the head and said, you need soul, you need to gladly receive the word, even when it corrects me, you know. But they gladly received it. And notice also in verse 41, they were baptized. Those who gladly received his word, they repented, and they gladly received his (coughs) word, were baptized just as commanded in the Great Commission by our Lord in Matthew chapter 28. Note that they were baptized. Water wasn't baptized. Persons were baptized. 
The moving element was the person, not the water. If you're wondering what I'm getting at, we're a Baptist church. We, we move people into water and out. We don't move water. We baptize persons, not water. But anyway, what is baptism? Because we're going to witness two baptisms today. Well, it hasn't happened yet. Uh, by people, two people who have repented and gladly received the word of Peter and Christ and God through me and through others. What is baptism? Here's what we confess. Here's our doctrinal statement. Baptism is an ordinance of the New Testament ordained by Jesus Christ to be unto the party baptized a sign of the fellowship with him in his death, with Christ, in his death and resurrection, of being engrafted into him, union with Christ, of remission of sins, cleansing on coming out of the water, and of his giving up unto God through Jesus Christ to live and walk in newness of life. So it's a sign that signifies those things. It's a divine sign that signifies. So when we watch those of us who have been baptized, we could say this, for all baptizens, pretty cool word, huh? That's persons that have been or are going to be baptized. This sign signifies something not just to the two that are going to be baptized. It should remind those of us that have been baptized, that's right. This is God's sign that I'm his in Christ, that my sins are forgiven, that I got a title to glory based on his righteousness, that I'm united to him, that I get benefits divine from him and through him and because of him. So it's a means of grace in that sense. Baptism is a sign. That is, it signifies, we could say, participation in Christ. It's God's sign to the party baptized and to those of us who have been baptized, signifying fellowship with Christ in death, burial, and resurrection, remission of all sins, cleansing, and new life. So we could say this, baptism is a visible word. The Lord's Supper is a visible word as well. The baptism is a visible word. It tells baptized persons that they're gods in Christ. They're forgiven due to Christ. Righteous due to Christ, buried due to Christ, raised due to Christ, and glorified due to Christ. They go, in the water, ugly, foul, and as a sign of judgment, by the way, but they make it through the waters of judgment, just like the ark did, just like Israel did, passing through the waters of judgment, just like some of them were able to cross the Jordan safely and come out the other side. You think those big water passages in the Old Testament have anything to do with baptism? And all the old theologians say, yes and amen. That means I think they do as well. It was an ordeal to undergo uh, uh, the judgment of God that Christ underwent. And he was he was judged and he was, he was buried, uh, but he made it out of the grave. And baptism tells us he did that as our forerunner and we're going to make it out of the grave someday. So it should be a means of grace for the rest of us as well. You've, have you ever heard this? Christian, 
Grab yourself by your baptism and remind yourself what that signifies and be encouraged. So some didn't receive it favorably. Others received it gladly. They were baptized. And then it says they were added. They were added uh, to the church. Uh, Matter of fact, you can see that in verse 47. Praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord, ha, the acts of the risen Lord Jesus right here. And the Lord Jesus added to the church daily those who were being saved. So these are being added to the church. Now, that's an interesting concept, especially in our day. The primitive church could be added to and therefore numbered, right? It was not some nebulous glob consisting of whoever walked into a meeting, but a distinctly identifiable body of believing, baptized persons committed to the Lord and to one another. You can kind of see the initial foundation for what we now call church membership there. Churches can be added to and subtracted from. You can count their members. What's the method to be counted? Churches do it differently, um, you know, but they ought to do it. By the way, there are churches in our day that don't have any membership whatsoever. It's like, how do you discipline people if they're not in something to kick them out of if they refuse to repent of gross, ugly, public, scandalous sins? Anyway, notice fourthly, they continued steadfastly. So we had their, their, uh, their glad, uh, favorable response. They received the word. They were baptized. They were added. See the order there? They are made disciples. Then they were baptized. And now we're going to see them in church membership in a visible community of saints. They continued steadfastly in four things. They continued steadfastly in apostolic doctrine, in the fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in the prayers. John Calvin called this the four marks whereby the true and natural face of the church may be judged. Apostolic doctrine, Christian fellowship, the Lord's Supper, and church prayer. Notice what it says here. And they continued steadfastly. They would refer here to those who gladly received his word and were baptized. So what do glad recipients of the gospel who get baptized, what do they do? They continue steadfastly in apostolic doctrine, in fellowship, in supper, and in prayer. Where do they get that from? The church. These are the same ones who were added to the church. They, all of them, continued steadfast in the apostles' doctrine, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. All of them continued steadfastly in all four elements here. Receiving the teaching of apostolic doctrine. Fellowship, sharing their goods and graces and love and all that with others in the community of the saints. 
breaking bread, I think it refers to the Lord's Supper here, and it is literally the prayers. And all the older theologians said, that's the church at prayer. All of these people continued in all four of those. And we should thank God they did because there wouldn't be local churches unless people did this. Our church wouldn't exist unless we had people that do this. A lot of times people go, I go to church, I want it to be there for me. But they don't want to do anything to make sure it's there. Like continue steadfastly in apostolic doctrine, in fellowship, in the breaking of bread and the prayers. So it was all of them. And you say, well, what does that mean? Well, it means that churches, if they want to be serious about this, they should require repentant, baptized people to live according to this minimal standard. Hold them accountable to it. Notice the action here. Continued steadfastly. This was a corporate way of life. They earnestly pursued these things as a way of life together. Here are some synonyms for continued steadfastly. To adhere to, to be devoted to, to give unremitting care to, to continue all the time to a certain action, uh, a certain act or actions. To continue all the time towards certain actions. That's very interesting. Being a part of the church, obviously back then, meant something. It demanded time, demanded their presence, it demanded their minds, it demanded their gifts, it demanded their goods. It was a huge redirection of life and priorities. So the deal, here's the deal. When you get saved from a perverse generation, everything changes. Everything. Life is now revolved around... I was talking to my wife on the way here. If you ask most Christians, who's the most, who's the most important person in your life? They should say, Jesus, right? That, that's the answer. It's the Sunday school answer for the kids. It should say, Jesus. And my next question is, what to my wife was, what does a life that's revolved around Jesus look like? And, you know, the biblical answer is, well, it looks like it's around where his body is. And his body is a metaphor for his church. It looks like this, steadfastly continuing in, Apostolic doctrine, Christian fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. That sounds like a good, good four things to do every Lord's Day with, with God's people, doesn't it? Continue steadfastly in this. Do you remember when you were saved? I remember when I got saved, when the guy said, I said, what do I do now? He goes, we need to talk to the pastor about baptism and church membership and go to church every Sunday, go to Sunday school, go to morning worship, go to evening worship, arrive early and stay late. And if anybody ever invites you to your house, go every single time. You know what I said? Okay. I didn't question it. Matter of fact, we just had vacation with a man that told me that. I think I thanked him for that. Just great advice. You remember the illustrator, the uh, true story about the young man who was raised in a non-Christian home, gets saved, goes to this very liberal uh, Christian college an hour from a 
church where a friend of mine pastors, shows up at that church as a brand new believer, starts coming every Lord's Day, all the services of the church, and went to the pastor's house and then started going to other people's houses between services for about six months. And then they voted him in as the dorm president or wherever they called him. And somebody went to him and said, dude, you've been saved six months. How do you know so much? Why are you so stable? Remember what his answer was? I go to church and not just sit there passively. I get involved with people's lives. I, I hang around. I go early. I stay late. Somebody invites me over. I go. I weep with them. I rejoice with them. Everybody, true saints, love that kind of environment. They love to be loved, warts and all, forgiven and all that stuff. But you gotta, you got to cultivate that. It doesn't come naturally or easily, especially for some of you, me included. You have to love me because God commands it. You don't have to like me, at least all the time. They continued steadfastly in it. They ended up going back to their hometowns at some point. Remember? There's thousands of people there that don't live there. How long they stayed, we don't know. Typical stays were 10 to 14 days, I think. But we don't know how long they stayed. I, my gut tells me some of them probably stayed longer out of fear of more persecution going back home. Could you see yourself as a Jewish young 16-year-old? Dad, I'm going to be with the Christians on Sunday. I'll still go to the synagogue for a while on, 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 on Saturday. But Jesus rose from the dead on, on Sunday. It's now, we call it the Lord's Day, Dad. Oh, and we don't do the Passover anymore. We do the Lord Jesus. He instituted a supper for his people. Could, could you see that happening? I could see the Jewish father say, wash your mouth out with soap. Or get out. And some of you know that happened a lot. But what happened when they dispersed from the Pentecostal uh, party there and went back to their hometowns? I can tell you what happened. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, in the fellowship of the saints, in the breaking of bread, and in the prayers. How do I know? Because you read the rest of the New Testament, and the apostles are writing to people, some of whom are Jewish, that don't live in Jerusalem, and they have churches. They continued steadfastly in those things. you realize what steadfast continuance in those four things will produce over, over time? Here's what it does. People who get it. If I want to be growing in grace, have people in my lives, life that have meaningful relationships with, I need to go to church every week. Come early, stay late, all the services, dive in. Uh, we don't want to be an 80-20 church. You know, 20% of the people do 80% of the work or however that goes. Um, it was good to have Mario gone. The only problem with, for Mario is that the guys that served in your absence... They did an outstanding job. I think the bar is even higher. 
And it was high with Mario. And it was great for me to see that. You know how much I've worried in the last two, several weeks when Mario's been gone? Or even before that, when Mario was just training these guys. You know how much I worried whether or not other guys and ladies, and some of them, their, their, their children as well, would come to bat and do what's necessary to make it easy for me to come here and do what I do? I Zero concern. Nothing. And then when I came a couple months ago and saw people coming, serving, and it was all done when we got here. Mario's walking around like, I trained him, you know. Uh, it was great to see. That's what we want. And you know, if you're a saint, you'll, you'll love to serve the saints, don't you? Um, be hospitable to one another without complaint. Even in your homes, there it is in, First Peter 4 or something like that. The, the contemporary rendering would be, uh, be hospitable without sniveling. You know, no sniveling. I gotta have Christians over my house. I gotta engage in their lives. We're not like that. We're private. We just show up on Sunday late and leave early. They continued steadfastly in these things. Sadly, many churches are administered less strictly than social clubs. They are. Social clubs, like the Elks Club, they have prerequisites for membership and standards. And when you violate them, you get a, you get a knock on the door. You get a phone call. How much more so the church of God? where we say, yeah, I want those standards. And, you know, not the lowest bar either. Why do we always settle for the lowest? Give me the high ones. I mean, not ridiculous ones. Ones that are rooted in the scriptures, okay? And hold me accountable to those things because if they're rooted in the scripture and God is good, then they're for my good. It's for my good if the pastor texts me and says, where you been? Or calls you and says, where you been? Or the way I do it, where have you been? That's the way I do it, right? That's the way to do it. Scold them. You don't do it that way. I think the bar was pretty high back then. Matter of fact, some of you have heard this before. You know when they, when they took the Lord's Supper, they would dismiss the dogs before they took the supper? And you know who the dogs were? Unbaptized people. You dogs. They took the, the Lord's Supper for them was such a sacred thing that they didn't want people that shouldn't be taking the supper even present. And they dismissed them. And that's why Christianity died out, because they had such strict rules like that. That's why it's dead. In the first century, it died out. It didn't, did it? It spread pretty fast. Matter of fact, before the apostles die, the gospel takes root all over the ancient R Roman Empire. And Ephesus becomes a hub, and Rome was as well, but Ephesus was a huge hub of apostolic ministry for at least two generations, Paul and then the apostle John most likely. Not only that, if you jump over 200 years, it's down into Africa. And yet they did things like dismissed people before they took the Lord's Supper 
among the baptized members. You would think, well, that's going to kill your movement, you dummies. You don't do that. You just say, you know, it's just up to your own heart. You can do whatever you want with these Christian things. And it's not up to your own heart. It's up to God's word. But Christianity grew. By the time you get to the late second century, third century, we have men like Athanasius of where? Where was he from? Alexandria. Where's Alexandria? Egypt. Then who's born next? Another A. Augustine. Where's Augustine from? Portugal. I mean, Italy. I mean, North Africa. Who's next? One of my favorites. Cyril of Fresno. A Cyril of Alexandria. See what happened? The, the apostolic influence was was in Jerusalem and around the surrounding area, and then it goes up to modern Turkey, and then it goes over, opposite for you guys, then it goes over to Europe, and then it starts penetrating in the south, people south of there and west, in Egypt, in North Africa. My wife mentioned the Ethiopian eunuch. He went from being baptized by Philip, back to Ethiopia, and you wonder, was he a mighty instrument in God's hand, either himself or somebody he witnessed to? Churches started to be born there, and so by the time you get to the fourth century, all the great theologians are North Africans, and we still read them and quote them. But they all did the same thing. They continued steadfastly in apostolic doctrine, in fellowship, in the breaking of bread and prayers. By the way, but when you read the New Testament, you know there's like 42 one another passages in the New Testament, and I think there's like 30 of them that are exclusively brother to brother, sister to sister, brother to sister, sister to brother, dynamic life experience stuff in local churches. Those letters were written to either churches or church leaders. Steadfastness. That's what we're called to. That's the standard. You want me to lower it and say, you know what? Treat our church like In-N-Out. You go to In-N-Out for their burgers and their fries are soggy, so you get a burger at In-N-Out, and then you go to another burger joint for your fries, and then you go to Dairy Queen for, 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 the, for the blizzard. Treat our church that way. Don't treat our church that way. We have, we have, our church is like, it's all or nothing, okay? It's dive in and become a part of what's going on, or I, I hate to say this, but this happens. If you just remain on the fringes, at some point you're going to feel left out, second class, and you know what people do? They blame us. It's the way you guys are. It's like, once you're in, you're going, no. I've sinned a lot in the presence of a lot of people here, and they still love me. They don't always like me. I've said dumb things. Right? I have. And they forgive me. I'm not always as faithful as I ought to be, 
individually with them, one-on-one. But when I try to set up meetings, people warmly say, yes, come, why didn't you come earlier? And that's when I say, stop scolding me. We have a, there's a community of love and acceptance and, and encouragement. And that's, that's how churches um, stay relatively healthy and recreate themselves. We know that day might come when we have too many people. Oh, Lord, haste the day. Uh, and we realize, you know what? We got a big group of people coming from, I'm not going to say Tehachapi. <clears throat> Victorville, uh, you're still moving, by the way. <clears throat> and that's a long drive. Maybe we can think about planning a church. Maybe we should think that way, as a matter of fact. Because churches in the New Testament were born through the ministry of other churches. The, church, the, the, the dynamic of church growth was from church to church. Paul was at the Antiochian church, and he gets sent out from a church, and he does his apostolic journeys, and lo and behold, believers are born, and churches are established. Matter of fact, remember, when they went back to some of the churches to appoint elders, that tells us churches can exist without elders in infantile stages, and that's what was going on then. But you can't do that if you're... Uh, if you're not earnestly continuing in those four things. Well, I'm almost finished. Let's do some contemplation. Let's think about this passage that we just looked at. First is this. <clears throat> the ministry the word preached creates the church. Peter preached Jesus, and what we call the Jerusalem church was created. The word of God preached creates the people of God. We're going to witness the baptism of two people. Don't know exactly when they believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and, and got saved, but they've been sitting under my preaching here for many, many months, and God has created two more contributions to our local body through the preaching of the word. The word creates the church. Peter's strategy is very clear. He preached. He got the word out. What should, what should my strategy be? I should preach Christ. When should I preach him? Every Sunday. How many sermons per Sunday? However many the church will put up with. Ours is two, right? The ministry of the word preached creates a church. Secondly, Christians are people who not only believe the gospel, but they get baptized, they get added to a church, and they are those who continue steadfastly with other Christians in the apostles' doctrine, in the fellowship of the saints, in the Lord's Supper, and in corporate prayer. That's what Christians do. You know, it's like, remember, I asked the guy, what do I do now? Go to church. Well, you learn when you go to church other things that Christians do, but that's the biggie that, that changed in my life. I mean, besides being a guilty sinner and then being cleansed by the blood of Christ, the biggie was now every Sunday I went to church. Before, I would be hungover watching NFL football games and yelling at the TV. Then 
I stopped it all of a sudden. Why? Because I got arrested by the grace of God and changed from the inside out. And it was, I didn't, and, and my friend wasn't saying, the fourth commandment, you got to keep the Sabbath holy. You better go to church. I didn't even think he had that in his mindset. The saints gather on the Lord's day, the day of the resurrection. You're a saint. You need to go there and be do, do what saints do. We belong to Christ. We no longer are our own. We've been bought with a price. Therefore, we are to glorify God in our body and in our spirit or souls. Apostolic doctrine is not just for the pastors or the cranially endowed. It's for all of the saints. It's for the church. Fellowship, sharing things in common as the need arises, is for all who gladly receive the gospel, are baptized, and added to the church. Now, everybody can't do and give the same as everybody else. And that's part of the beauty of the dynamic of a body. A body has various parts and functions. Some of you will function as a little toe. Lose a little toe. And then tell me, a little toe doesn't mean anything. You ever seen people without a little toe? It's like they, they have to learn how to walk again. Even if you're a little toe. By the way, you can't be the lint between the little toe and the second toe from the outside because lint isn't a part of the body. It's an accident thing that adheres to us that we can blow off, you know. But even if you're a little toe, it's important. You say, well, I'm, I'm a pinky. Chop a pinky off or a thumb. Chop your thumb off and tell yourself thumbs don't, they're not important. So, well, I'm just an ear in the body. Chop an ear off. You get the point? There's only one head. You say, well, pastor, what are you? I'm not the head. I might be a lip, but I'm not the head. There's only one head. That is Christ. And we're all members of his body. We all have our gifts and strengths and talents and we are to fellowship in that way. The Lord's Supper is for all those in the church. The repentant, believing, baptized, added to the church people. That's who the supper is for. Church prayer is for all those in the church. Church prayer is to be steadfastly continued in by all those added to the church. We could put it this way. In the first century, what one did, they all did because they all gladly received Peter's word and receiving the gospel always has practical implications for the way one lives. I warned graciously the two baptizens today. You realize what you're getting yourself into here. You know, uh, we expect Christians to act like Christians, not 21st century Christians. There's something wrong with, with us. But older Christians who lived in such a way as they were able to deposit the truth and hand it on to a next generation, and their church continued more than just the life of the pastor, you know. I'm 60. I don't want that to happen. I don't want to die and the church dies. 
Mario's not 60, but he will be soon. He's got the same desire. We, we got to train guys. And I'm sorry, Ted, we're not training you. We don't want a 75-year-old guy. I mean, we do, but you know what I mean. You're not the future. I'm not the future. I, I mean, my future's in the future, but it's pretty limited. It's not like I got 40 more years of this. I don't. And if our church is going to go into the next generation, this is when I scold. Some of you young men need to, in the language of Paul Washer, man up, you know, and grow and develop and, and be patient and become pillars. And you say, well, that's not me. Well, it wasn't me either at some point. I don't even think it's me now. But that's what it takes, steadfast continuance in these things. And you know what happens over the years? You grow. You become a stable Christian. You love the church more. You don't go, oh, we got to go to church again? I get the means of grace again? I have to hear about Jesus again? i got to sing? i got to share my stuff with other people? i got to pray? That stuff makes me sick. You don't do that, right? It's the opposite. And you even train yourself to go to church when you don't feel like it. And you know what? Good for you. Where was I? Christians are people, third, who don't allow circumstances to determine what they steadfast continue, continue in. Okay? I've said this before. Revolve your week around this day. And it really helps. And then finally, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's in the passage, right? Be saved from this perverse generation. They repented. They believed his word. Many more words he exhorted and admonished them. They repented of their sins. They went to Christ. They received the offer of Christ in the proclaimed gospel. So they believed, they got baptized. That's what you need to do if you're lost. You need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you need to get baptized, and you need to be added to the church. And if you have believed and been baptized and are not added to a church, you need to get added. If you have believed, been baptized, been added to a church, continue steadfastly, in the apostles' doctrine, in fellowship, in the supper, and in the prayers. And you should stand back every day, certainly every Sunday. I try to get all of us who are saved to just stand back and go, why was, why was I made a guest of all this spiritual feast? I didn't, I, like, I wasn't good. I was bad. If you knew 1% of it, you wouldn't be, we wouldn't be friends. Remember I've said that before. If we just all start coughing it all up, everything we've done, you would start seeing factions in the church. People start moving. Husbands say, honey, we got to get away from that guy or that girl. It, it was bad, okay? But now we're, we're saved. Grace came and grace remade and grace endowed us and grace enriched us and grace calls us and we should marvel at the grace of God. Not only that, at the kind providence of God before the grace of God stopped us in our tracks. 
Because we were walking around guilty sinners deserving hell. And what did we get? Just the opposite. Um, the Lord Jesus got what we deserved in order that we might get what we don't deserve. And, and that should, and this is the incarnate son of God. Okay, it's not just like a horizontal hero from the late Middle Ages or something that your, your kids are reading about, you know. This is the incarnate son of God. This is the Lord of glory who was rich, became poor for our sakes that we might become rich in him. So believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, get baptized, get added to a church and every Lord's day, every day of the week, marvel at the grace of God in your life. Because if you're in Christ Jesus, remember what Paul says? He doesn't say, it's your doing. He says, it's his, capital H, his doing. Repentance is actually a gift. Faith, a gift. Baptism, a donation from heaven, a gift. The apostles' doctrine, a gift. Fellowship, a gift and privilege. Supper, he didn't have to give us these things. He did. Church prayer, all these things are donations, gifts from heaven to sinners like us to help us limp along the way and ultimately to get to glory, not by virtue of our limping along the way, but by virtue of the righteousness of Christ for us. Your continuance in these things, as rough and ugly as it may be at times, is also a gift. So I didn't want to come to church today. I I brought a foul offering. So what do you do? Stay home and get sinless before you come to church usually? We all have stench about us. No, if you know it, you acknowledge it. But you say, well, today was pretty ugly on the way to church. We had one of those things. Of course, that has never happened with anybody in this room, right? I know. Happened one time when I was driving to preach someplace. I had to pull over on the freeway. Could have got a ticket. I don't even remember what it was over. My wife was way wrong. She humbled herself and repented. (laughs) I yelled at my kids. I sinned. I did, you know, whatever it is. Yeah, but you came. You're here. Lord, forgive you. Lord, strengthen you. Yeah, it's ugly at times. But sometimes we just say, I made it. You know, better late than never. Early is better than late, by the way. But it's better to come late than not come. Oh, we can't come late. It'll be embarrassing. Then come early. <laughs> but come. And even our, our ugly continuance in these things, that's by grace as well. And we should be very thankful. I'm rambling. The plane needs to land, so let's pray. We thank you, Lord. We pray that you would help us to see this wonderful pattern 
uh, from the book of Acts. We want to see it in our church. We want to see it in other churches. We want people to hear the gospel, to believe the gospel, repent of their sins, come to Christ, be baptized, be added to the church, and then steadfastly engage in apostolic uh, uh, doctrine, the reception of its teaching, in fellowship, the love, and the sharing among the saints, in the breaking of bread, the supper, and in the formal times of church prayer. Help us and bless, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.